0: You know the the temperature uh, fluctuates so much it seems in this in this sanctuary so if you get too cool go spend a 5 seconds outside and if you get too hot go spend a few seconds outside and you'll be back to regular temperature. Uh, I want to invite everyone to open their bibles to Genesis chapter 19. Um last Sunday would have been more appropriate uh for this but it would have been 33 years. Okay, 33 years on June the 4th, since one of the most infamous events in history, uh, chances are every one of us have heard about it, uh, it's what we now know as the Tiananmen Square Massacre in Beijing, so 33 years ago on June 4th. For those of you who may not be as familiar, uh, in the summer of 1989, millions of people gathered in and around uh, the Chinese government's most central square, and it's called Tiananmen Square in, in the city of Beijing. And so these people were there to protest the Chinese Communist Party and and to um, call for pro-democracy reforms like due process, freedom of speech, freedom of press, and and things of that nature. And this happened over the course of several weeks. Eventually, the government responded with one of the most censored and bloodiest events in all of history. The Chinese government mobilized upwards of 300,000 soldiers 300,000 soldiers in dozens, if not hundreds of tanks, instructed all cameras and TV cameras to be shut off and killed estimates of 10,000 people. 10,000 people of their own citizens. To this day, it's one of the most censored events in China, and the outside world still doesn't really know how many people were uh, put to death. But there is one picture that stands out from this time, uh, among many other pictures. Linda's nodding her head. It doesn't surprise me, our history resident history buff there. Many will have seen it, though. It's of one lone Chinese man on his way home, holding a bag of groceries, standing in the midst of a vast freeway, blocking the path of several Chinese tanks. The photo itself is called Tank Man. And no one knows the identity of the man in the picture or what happened to him. The picture itself is highly censored in China. Some say he was arrested and executed. But the picture reveals a stark reality of one lone man against a mighty force. In Genesis 19, there is one lone man against a mighty culture. He's not nearly as heroic as the tank man, but it is the stark reality of one man against a very dark culture. Uh, One man who survives a very dark culture. This man is Abraham's nephew Lot. And he's living in Sodom with his family. And we've been told, even if you aren't familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah. If you've never even heard of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, in many places in Genesis so far, we've been told that Sodom and and Gomorrah are very wicked places. And in the last chapter, Abraham pleads on behalf of the righteous who live in Sodom. Spare Sodom for the sake of the righteous. At least for ten righteous people. But as we'll see in this chapter, there are no righteous in Sodom. Only one man is rescued, and it is Lot. Lot is the only man, unperverted by his culture, he's the only man rescued, and he's the only man left available for procreation at the end of the chapter. So it is in Lot that we see the great wickedness of of Sodom and God's just judgment. and We see that in this chapter, but also what it means and what it takes to persevere. Persevering among wickedness, persevering amidst judgments, and and persevering in in desperation. And we see all of these elements in this chapter. Like the the tank man, it takes great courage to persevere. But but I want us to heed the warning of, of chapter 19, that in order to survive great wickedness, we persevere by looking to a great God. All right? In order to survive great wickedness, we persevere by looking to a great God. So, we're going to read chapter 19. And uh, in, in, as you guys have known, you know, in Genesis, the chapters are long. All right. So, we're going to spend some time reading this entire, ta- entire chapter. I have it up on the screen. Don't always get it on the screen because sometimes it's quite a bit of text, but I was able to do that this week. So, Genesis chapter 19, starting in verse 1. The two angels But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, come. Let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So it's a long chapter. But the the first part of this chapter focuses on Lot in contrast to the culture of Sodom. And that's where we see the first warning. In culture, never give in to corruption. Now, by way of forewarning, there's plenty of alliteration in this sermon, so hang on to your seatbelts. But in culture, never give in to corruption. Uh, When the two angels come to Sodom, uh, they appear as, as two men, as they did with Abraham. And they're going to spend the night in the square. And it could be that by Lot trying to prevent them from going, we're seeing a picture of how unsafe the city really was. Uh, because being in the city at evening means you're safe, right? That the gates get closed at night. You have watchmen on the towers watching out for uh, enemies. And, and you have walls that, that protect the city. And so you're you're safe from from bandits on the road. You're safe from wild animals. You're safe from all kinds of dangers. But these angels, they couldn't even assume that they were safe in the city. The, The city was so unsafe, it was as if they're still out on the road. So, in a way, Lot is protecting these angels because he knows the danger. You can't go sleep in the city square. Now, this isn't like springfield right going to sleep in the city square we, we think like oh you go to sleep in the city square was wrong you know whatever but but it's so unsafe that he knows the danger and and but lot is also standing in comparison to abraham here i don't know if you guys remember chapter 18 from last week but that those first few verses are almost identical right to, to abram abraham and lot just as abraham insisted on hospitality in the last chapter with warm generosity, so too is Lot. And Furthermore, just as Lot knows it is unsafe out in the city, it's not just unsafe out there. His is the only house that is safe in the entire city. These angels can't even go to the the police department. There's there's one guy's house that's safe. Look at verse 4. But before they lay down, The men of the city, the men of Sodom. Look at the descriptions. He's describing everybody, both young and old. All the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. Lot's house is the only safe place in this entire city. And that is why it is important to heed this first warning because it can be overwhelming. He's the only man uncorrupted. The the contrast is between the one man Lot and the every other man of the city. The corruption of Sodom was overwhelming. It's Lot against everybody else, and the corruption that we find ourselves in can be overwhelming too. It's overwhelming when a vast number of people in a culture are, are of one mind over something. I mean you guys are, are already thinking of, of different things. So abortion, right, is is one example in our culture. And and not only not only are there a great number of people who support it, but to go against it, you, you go against women and women's rights. Yeah, it's also there's also overwhelming to overwhelming pressure to support the LGBTQ lifestyle. Uh, In other cultures, it may not look like that. It it might look like the the overwhelming corruption to give into a a religion or or some kind of superstition. Uh, Just the other week, I heard about this Muslim man who became a Christian, uh, and it was a few weeks before he was baptized because he knew as soon as he was baptized and came out public with his faith, his family would quite literally try to kill him. He came from a particularly powerful family. Uh, and, and and that's just Muslim culture. And in our culture, you can face overwhelming fr- pressure from your own family to put your family before following Christ. It could be pressure to put politics right in place of Savior instead of Jesus. Pressure comes from many different places. And it can be overwhelming. Not only overwhelming, but it could lead to compromise. The men of Sodom insist on having their way with Lot's guests. Bring them out to us so that we may know them. The Bible's polite way of saying that we may sleep with them. And Lot doesn't do so well here, does he? I, I mentioned that he's not as heroic as the tank man. He's not. Look at verse 7. I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. He, oh, so far, so good. Behold, I have two daughters. Oh, no who I have not known any man, oh no, let me bring them out to you, oh no, and do to them as you please. Oh no. One purpose of this is to to highlight just how wicked the the city of Sodom has become. and, And how right God was to judge it. Alan Ross wrote in his commentary that even this perversion was rejected by those bent on evil. You see, Lot ends up escaping, but you could say he, he escaped smelling like smoke. His dwelling in Sodom caused him to make severe compromises in his life that nearly compromised his own rescue. He was willing to offer up, like literally sacrifice, the good of his family for another good thing, the good of his visitors. That, that's compromise. And, and compromise can look like a lot of different things. It could look like compromise with culture's morals and accepting them. Maybe we don't accept them wholeheartedly, but maybe in degrees. An example of this in church, or, or I'm sorry, before I get there, in, in the Jim Crow South, right? Maybe you su- supported segregation wholeheartedly as a Christian. That's one way you compromise on your faith. But another way was just saying silent on the matter during that time. that's compromise. But like lot, it could very much look like sacrificing giving away one good thing for the sake of achieving another good thing. In church culture, we have a real problem with that here in America because it looks like it looks like giving up forsaking character and accountability or dynamic preaching or gifted leadership. It's compromise, and it destroys churches. We we don't give in to culture, and we don't do that by giving up something good and valuable and precious, like our own integrity, right? Taking one good thing and giving it up for the sake of another good thing is to compromise. So corruption can be overwhelming. It could lead to compromise, but it will always lead to blindness. It's ironic that the very people, Lot's trying so hard to protect, end up protecting him. Verse 10, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, most small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. You know, in, in some ways I like this picture because I think it's a picture of all of us that we'd be blind too, except for God and His grace yanking us back. But it is a tech terrifying picture because with sin, God doesn't necessarily judge with lightning bolts. I mean, He's not Zeus. He sends blindness. And blindness is far worse. Paul described this in Romans 1, talking about the sinful um, nature of mankind since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind. The great consequence of sin is more sin. More blindness. More depravity. And there's no way out of it but by divine rescue. So church, never give in to corruption in culture because it will always lead to blindness. Blindness. Blindness over what's right and what's wrong. Blindness over sin. Blindness over pride and and self-righteousness. Blindness to your own heart. Blindness to your need for grace. And most importantly, blindness to the glory of God. Don't simply assume you are not blind, but seek God daily ask god for the mercy to see clearly each day help me to see because of the blindness that threatens us as if that's the only kind of danger we face typically when you go on a trip uh you breathe that sigh of relief when you board the plane or get on the the road right am i the only one that does this like Uh, When the plane takes off, right, it's like, I'm leaving my worries away. That's how Mallory and I felt when we went down to a friend's wedding in Louisiana. We were hoping to get away for a weekend and have some fun with our friends. Until we realized two hours down the road, I forgot my groomsmen outfit, which we had to pay like 200 bucks to overnight to Louisiana. Okay, no problem, it should get there. Well, we go down the road, stop for lunch, our car batteries die. car battery die, that's another, like, hundred dollars. Okay, we got that figured out. Uh, and then we find out that the suit's not gonna be there in time, so I go to a cheap suit shop and spend two hundred dollars for a suit, which is cheap, by the way. I mean, you know what I mean, compared to other suits. It's, but it's non-refundable. Oh, but guess what? The, the groomsman suit ends up coming in, in on, in time, just for the wedding. Everything just goes wrong. And so you you can't underestimate everything going wrong when you get away. And just because Lot is rescued, he can't underestimate the danger that still exists. And that's what happens here, the second warning. In rescue, never underestimate risk. Risk is posed by three things specifically in, in verses 12 to 22. And the first is the risk of complacency. This is seen primarily in Lot's sons-in-law. The, the angels tell Lot that they're going to destroy Sodom. And, and get your family. Get anybody you know that'll listen to you and get out of here. And that's when he goes to his sons-in-law. Hey boys, up. Get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. So they have their chance to escape. They have it. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. This is a picture of what happens when we take sin lightly. and When we take judgment lightly. We, we tell the world, repent for Christ is coming to judge, but we seem crazy to them or delusional. And this complacency is a danger for Christians too. Especially when we take salvation for granted. When, when I first you know, surrendered to the call to ministry, in my depraved thinking, I thought I got a pass for sin. Put it lightly, I was an idiot. But we do this when we sin and we think, God will forgive me. He'll forgive me for this. Or that, or, or more deeply, that because we're saved, sin affects us differently than it does other people. Never underestimate complacency about sin and judgment, Christian. Never. There's risk in complacency. There's also also risk in familiarity. Verse 16 tells us that after the angels urgently implore him to flee, after everything that's happened, what does it say? What does Lot do? Get out of here! Verse 16, but he lingered. He's lingering In a city where he was about to give his two daughters to a mob. He's lingering in a city of people who are going to kill him in order to get to his guests. He's lingering in a city that he knows is about to be destroyed. Lot is like that one girl we've all heard about or have seen in movies that that keeps going back to that one guy. Right? He's a jerk. He's selfish. He's unkind, but she thinks she can like help him or something. He's being crazy here, in Okay, like that's—he's being crazy. Snap out of it, Lot. And and more than that, he's not comfortable enough to flee to the hills, like the angels tell him to. He pleads for a city. Give me a city. And and whereas he's compared to Abraham earlier in this chapter, he's contrasted with Abraham here, because what did Abraham do? Abraham pleads for a city for the sake of others. Lot is pleading for a city just for himself. In all of this, his familiarity and comfort with his position is posing a great risk to his rescue. Like the angels literally have to seize him and toss him and his family out of the city in the one place and then give him this silly concession to flee to the city so that he's rescued. God had great mercy on Lot here. But we've got to see the danger that familiarity poses for us here. Whereas one danger is compromising to give up a good thing, familiarity is where we aren't willing to give up something that we should. Things like money, comforts, homes, possessions, ease. I think this is exactly what Jesus meant when He's teaching the parable of the seeds and some fell along uh, the path and some fell along rocks. And, and He says the one that received the seed that fell among thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. So be wary of familiarity, over-familiarity with this life. This leads to the last last risk posed, risk and temptation. This is seen in, in the sad fate of Lot's wife. They're out! They're free! They're rescued. But Lot's wife, verse 26, behind him looked back. She became a pillar of salt. This might be the same idea that Jesus had when he said in Luke chapter nine, "No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God." In any case, the the idea is a longing for something else besides uh, the kingdom of God. It's it's a longing for something else besides God. It, it's a fondness. It's for sin. One writer in his commentary said, even after the destruction of Sodom, the mentality of Sodom remained. Do not underestimate the danger of temptation or the destructiveness of sin. It will destroy you. Sin left on its own long enough will destroy your faith and your soul. As secure as you think you might be. Finally, in desperation, never abandon devotion. Now we come to a really sketchy scene in a cave. Lot's daughters get their dad drunk and sleep with him so they can carry on the family life. And all of this, in this, this entire scene, every action is driven by desperation. And I want to show you three ways that desperation is in this passage and how they apply to us. First, in desperation, don't be driven to isolation. It wasn't long after God judged Sodom that Lot decided he didn't like living in Zor anymore, so he goes to the hills after all. Good for Lot. It sounds like he's obeying the angel's command. But he's not really. Why? Why? Because, first of all, the hills where he was supposed to go first to escape the judgment of God, and not as a place to stay. Right? They're a place of escape, not a place to stay. But secondly, the text explicitly tells us he goes for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he's not deciding to go there because he thought the angels had a good idea. He's living there out of fear lot has allowed his desperation to lead him into isolation. And the first danger of isolation is that, well, frankly you just do crazy things when you're alone for too long. Um, When I'm alone for too long, I start talking to myself in accents. I'm really good at accents, uh, by the way. It's how I won Mallory over and how I continue to drive her crazy to this day. Isolated people become desperate people. That's part of the reason why we have this scene with his daughters in the first place. They're alone and they're just driven to do crazy things. But isolation is really a problem in our society. People are lonelier than ever. Because we've been trying to substitute real human community with with the community we have over the internet or, or social media or gaming and isolation is a big problem, a big temptation for Christians. Jesus? Oh, we love Jesus. We like Jesus. But his church? No, thank you. We often tell ourselves that we're better on our own, don't we? But isolation is very un-Christ-like because God is not an isolated God and Christ is not an isolated Savior. John Chrysostom an early church theologian, I mean, really early church theologian, he wrote, He cannot have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. Which means you can't call yourself a Christian if you're not submitting to and serving his church. It's impossible. So don't be driven to isolation, but also in desperation, don't be driven to inebriation. It's not just that Lot's daughters trick him into getting drunk. He lets them get drunk. I mean, there are only three people here. It's not that hard to figure out what's going on. If they had a murder mystery party, it would not be very fun. They'd figure that out pretty quick. I mean, one of them's got to figure out the story, and then you only have two that are a murderer. I don't know if you guys ever played murder mystery party, but they're fun. Anyway... It wouldn't be hard to figure out that they were trying to get him drunk. There's just three of you, right? And instead of trying to protect his daughters and staying vigilant, he lets it happen. And I believe that Lot is letting himself become drunk because he's desperate. He's lost his wife, he's lost um, his house, his possessions, he's lost everything, and so he's retreating to something to comfort him. He's just letting it happen. In this case, it's it's alcohol, but substance abuse can be a real problem and a real temptation when you're desperate. When the pain just won't go away. Depression lingers. When you've lost everything. But Jesus, He commands us to be sober-minded. Be careful, He said, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. And the danger is, if you're being controlled by a substance, then you're not being controlled by the Spirit. And where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. Church, freedom is not in the bottle. It's not in the pill. It's not in the drug. Repent of inebriation. Seek help if you need to. In desperation, don't be driven to inebriation. And thirdly, in desperation, don't be driven to instinct. Mere instinct. This is where Lot's daughters come into play. And the characters of the Old Testament do some really messed up stuff to them. I mean, we've seen Abraham do some messed up stuff, like, here's my wife, king of, of Egypt, you know, and, 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 um, uh, and Lot, here's my daughters, uh, crazy moon of Sodom. And, and really, that should be encouraging for all disciples of Christ, because we've all really messed up. There's redemption. But one of this scene's primary purposes is to, is to show where two nations come from, because these two nations end up becoming very prominent neighbors of Israel. We have Moab and the Ammonites. Both feature significantly in Israel's history. In fact, uh, talking about redemption, uh, David's uh, grandmother, I think it's her grandmother or great grandmother, is a Moabite. So God redeems it, but, but, This also shows that lots of daughters are desperate to keep the family line going, and in this way, they're kicked into survival mode. Instinct. Verse 32 Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. What's wrong with instinct? Instinct's only focus is self preservation. When we're driven by instinct, we are thinking only of how can I come out of this for me? This happens at work when maybe we want a position or we're competing for a position and we begin to cut down our co-workers. This happens at home when we're trying to make our parents maybe like us more than our other siblings or something of that nature. It happens a lot in society when every message we hear is our livelihoods hang in the balance. No wonder more and more people are driven to violence. They're they're thinking their survival is on the line. No, listen, we're not to be a people of self-preservation, but of self-dying. Not of survival instinct, but of self-control. Not of cutthroat, but of cross Carry. Don't be driven to instinct even when so desperate. In all of this, our retreat is the man Jesus Christ. The God man Jesus Christ. He's first of all our retreat from judgment. Uh, Sodom becomes a picture of what becomes of sin. Alright, not just a particular kind of sin, but of all sin. It becomes a picture of how God will judge the world. Not with like a passive reluctance, but with holy wrath. To our modern ears, we kind of like recoil at God's holy wrath. But God is just in exercising great judgments. Through holy anger. Christ is our retreat from judgment because the judgment that we rightly deserve, He took upon Himself. Not just for a city of wicked people, but a world of wicked people. Jesus is not for you if you think you're righteous. Jesus is a Savior for sinners, for ungodly people, for wicked people. He, he is your retreat from judgment. He's also our retreat from sin. I, 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 in this chapter, I hope you've noticed that at every uh, turn, every step, they're faced with some kind of danger or, or temptation or, or sin. And, and you don't have the power to fight sin, you, in yourself, don't have that ability. You can't wish it away. You can't hope time will make it go away. You can't go become a monk. You can isolate yourself as much as you want, but you cannot fight sin. Christ in you is the power to fight sin. And if you really want to fight sin, it is through daily communion with Him. Reading your Bible, praying, but, but through the eyes of faith, seeing how glorious He is, how good and wonderful. Want to fight sin? Enlarge your heart with Christ. Paul says that in Ephesians 3, he was made an apostle to tell everyone about the unsearchable riches of Christ. There are unsearchable riches in this person. Do you believe that? Christ is our retreat from judgment he's our retreat from sin and he's our retreat for hope because listen we fail miserably my goodness do we fail we sin we deserve to be like lot's wife and, and jesus is our hope when we fail because he took all your failures and all your sins and all your just judgment on himself he absorbed it all your, your past sins that your present like struggles and in, in your future sins. He took it all on Himself and He's faithful to you. He loves to be faithful to you. He's our hope. He is our hope in a, in a culture of corruption. He's our hope in, in risk when things are costly. He's our hope when we're desperate. He is everything in every season. He is a great Savior for you. A great Savior for you. Call out to him in faith and repentance today. Let's respond to God's word. Father, you are a righteous and just judge. And if we are in tune with our hearts, we know that's true. That even today, no matter how long we've been Christians, we deserve your judgment. By Your grace, You yank us. You seize us by Your mercy. Our only hope is in a Savior who went before us. A Savior who walked into our Sodom hearts, took the judgment on Himself, and made us new. Gave us new life. Made us born again. Before you came to us, we were blind. Groping. For something. Desperate. In your mercy, you give us sight. We're desperate for you, Father, to work in our hearts. To keep us safe. Safe from sin, safe from judgment, and safe from ourselves. So in Christ and in His great rescue and in His great redemption, shower us with Your grace. Shower us with Your mercy and enlarge our hearts with Christ that we may persevere in all wickedness, in all judgment, and in all desperation. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.